You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, Matthew chapter 5. We're back in our set of sermons called Valleys Fill First. It's a set of sermons through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' longest recorded sermon. And I laughed this week um, reading a story about a contemporary of C.S. Lewis. And uh, his, his, this contemporary uh, of Lewis, uh, he, he wrote a, and really published an article that was accusing C.S. Lewis of not liking the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, so C.S. Lewis then publishes a response back to this sort of critic, this contemporary critic. And, and this is what he said in response to you, C.S. Lewis, don't like the Sermon on the Mount. He said, as to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if, uh, quote-unquote, caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for the Sermon on the Mount. And, and I love this next phrase. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. Now, I feel that when I read the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it, it does feel to me like Jesus has, has gotten the sledgehammer out, and he has just gone to swinging. That, that's what it feels like to me as I read it. And there's no passage that I feel that more probably in the scriptures at large than I do the particular passage we're in this morning. And, and the reason this, this passage that, that we're in today is, is in particular hard is because it runs contrary to our instincts. Our instincts run one way, and this passage is about to push right against the instinctive sort of pulls uh, of, uh, that we all feel. Um, parenting is an amazing thing. If you have kids or you've been around kids, it's an amazing thing to watch kids grow up because you're getting to see and learn so much about what it means to be human as you watch your kids. And, and it's amazing. Uh, if you've got kids, you'll be able to, uh, to relate to this. When one of my kids gets punched, there is this instinctive response that rises back up and out of them to do what? To punch back, right? That is such a, a deep human default. Y you punch me, I'm going to punch you. But I'm not just going to punch you. It's not just going to be an eye for an eye. I'm going to punch you like twice as long and twice as hard. Just to make sure you remember before you punch me again that this is going to go bad for you. Right? I mean, th this is such an instinctive um, response embedded into the human heart. And what makes this passage so incredibly difficult is this sledgehammer is swinging against that instinct in us. Uh, so a couple of weeks ago, Jimmy, he covered the passage right before the passage we're going to be in today. Uh, just pick it up in verse 39. Here's just a sampling of what Jimmy covered here recently. Uh, Jesus says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, slaps you on the right cheek. I, I can take a punch because a, a punch is not necessarily meant to humiliate. It's meant to hurt you. I, I, there's a little bit of honor left at the end of that one, right? But, but when someone open hand slaps you, or worse yet, they, Jimmy demonstrated this if you were here a few weeks ago, they backhand slap you. There is no honor left at the end of that slap, is there? I mean, you've got to do something in that moment. Right? I mean, it's just all of our instincts are being violated here. But I say to you, do not resist the, the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. There is, there is nothing instinctive in a human heart that says, that's what I'll do. 
That's how I'll respond to that moment. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This is Jesus swinging the sledgehammer, clearing the debris in our heart. And as king, Jesus is showing us what life in his kingdom looks like. It's an upside-down way of living. It's a non-instinctual way of living. But this is what life in his kingdom is like. He's, he's defining as the king what Christianity in action ought to be. That, that, that's what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount. And then it gets even worse in our passage today. Jesus goes on, starting in verse 43, and says this. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Um, One quick preface and then we'll jump in. One of the most difficult things about preaching is that it is preaching to a lot of people in one room and those people, like you in this room today, are really diverse in your background, your experiences, all of those sort of things. So, so that means that, that you have a particular grid that you are listening through. So everything that I say and or the Bible says is, is coming through your grid, and that's your, that, that's your way of interpreting it. It's your way of making sense of it. And that grid has been shaped so much by your experiences in life. So that when when we come to a passage like this, when we are the one who has done the harming of others, these words come through our interpretive grid, and and they have a way of ringing true and seeming so tender of Jesus. But on the other hand, if we are the one who has been harmed at the hands of others, and, and I just want to acknowledge before we say anything else today that some in this room have endured horrific things at the hands of other people. And so if that's us, uh, these words have a way of ringing troubling, and they seem really tough, not tender by Jesus. So I think it's just like the the weekly sort of difficulty of preaching is is you're trying to apply a text like this to to a diverse room that's going to feel all those different things when we come across a passage like this. And and so I I just want to start off by saying this for all of us in the room, regardless of how we feel about a passage like this. Every time we read the Bible, we have to make sure that that even before we're reading or as we're reading, that we are continually repositioning ourselves under the the authority of Jesus. We have to do that. Or or we begin to set ourselves up as the judge of the Bible and as the judge of Jesus, as opposed to to the opposite. So, so I just want to give us a moment this morning to do that, to just remind ourselves that, that Jesus is our king. And as our king, he both has the right and the wisdom to define what is good for us, to define what's going to lead to our flourishing. So let's just make sure as we think through this passage that we are under the authority of Jesus this morning. Amen? Okay, I want to take this in three parts. Uh, the first, I want to look at this from the angle of the Pharisees. Uh, from the Pharisees. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, this is the the sixth time in Matthew chapter 5, the sixth time that Jesus has used this set of statements. You have heard it said, but I say. You you have heard it said, but, but I'm saying this. Now, when Jesus says you have heard it said, he is not criticizing or critiquing 
the Old Testament and the, the law or the commands that we find in the Old Testament. When he says, you have heard it said, he, he's critiquing the, the Pharisees and scribes, their interpretation of the Old Testament. That, that's what he's after. That, that's what he's addressing. Not the Old Testament per se, but their interpretation of the Old Testament. He, he's, addressing, he's addressing this, uh, this constant sort of tendency that the scribes and Pharisees had of downsizing the law of shrinking the law down to what was humanly possible. Their ongoing tendency was to adjust the law of God to fit their life and their morality. This is what my life looks like. This is how I want to live. So how do I bend these words from God to fit the way I want to live? This is what they were continually doing. And it's what Jesus is continually addressing in Matthew chapter 5. He, he starts with the sixth commandment. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. He goes on to explain. If you're hating in your heart, then you're murdering in your heart. He, he goes on to address the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And he explains, you shall not look upon someone lustfully. That's the heart and intent of the seventh commandment. He goes on to address the ninth commandment and lying. You've heard that it's said, but I say. And now we get to this moment in Matthew 5, and he's addressing this Old Testament commandment to love. To love. And, and he's in particular addressing the, the Pharisees and how they downsized the command to love your neighbor. They had downsized it. When, when they thought about what Jesus required... What, what love looked like in the Old Testament, they saw it as a love with limits. That, that's how they saw love. L love your neighbor means we get to set a lot of arbitrary sort of definitions and boundaries around who is going to be the recipient of that love. It's going to be a love with limits. Now, the command in question comes straight from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And, and the command says this, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's, that's the command that's in question here. This is, this is what they were interpreting, and now Jesus is reinterpreting and really lining out. Uh, what does it mean to love your neighbor? And there were two ways that the Pharisees and the scribes had downsized or shrunk, really gutted this command to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, they had made one subtraction and one addition. One subtraction and one addition. Here's the subtraction. One subtraction. The, the subtraction was, the command said, love your neighbor as yourself, a as yourself. But there was a convenient subtraction of as yourself. L love your neighbor as yourself. They had changed that to love your neighbor. Now, let me just address the, those two words, as yourself, uh, really quickly before I, I get to the kind of the point of them. Uh, and I feel a need to do that because we live in such a, a self-esteem sort of obsessed culture. And, and what our self-esteem, you know, culture does is they take th this word, love your neighbor as yourself, that, that phrase, and, and they turn that into a command to love yourself. You are not going to find a command to love yourself in the scriptures. The Bible doesn't command it. The Bible assumes it. Uh, Jesus and the Bible know that if there's one thing every human has down, it's love of self. But that's not the problem. The, the human problem is not self-love. The, 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 the human problem is not a lack of self-love. The human problem is self-love. So, so just think about how self-love plays itself out. And make sure you catch both sides of this. When, when self-love gets its way and things are going well for a person who loves themselves, what that naturally produces is a lot of self-confidence, even arrogance in their life. 
That, that's what self-love produces when things are going well. When, when, when self-love is blocked, when, when in life is not going well, uh, they're not getting the things they want, people who love themselves then turn to what we might call low self-esteem. There's a lot of self-loathing. There's a lot of, of self-pity for that. But, but both of those two things, uh, kind of that arrogant version and that self-loathing version, both have self-love down underneath it. Self-love sits below it. The Bible knows this. It assumes self-love down there as the problem, right? And, and so the problem is not um, self or a lack of, of, of self-love. The problem is self-love. And, and the only solution for self-love is an overriding love of Jesus. That, that's the solution to, to the whole problem of low self-esteem or arrogance is, is an overriding love of Jesus. That, that is the solution to it. But now here, here's Jesus' point. When he says love your neighbor as yourself, he's not commanding love yourself. He's assuming you love yourself plenty, right? So he's saying here when he says love your neighbor as yourself, look at the ways that you love yourself. Just look at your life and all the ways self-love shows itself in your life. Uh, look at the way that you prioritize yourself. Look at the way that you fight for your rights. Look at the way that you demand that you're heard. Look at the way that you, you make sure your needs are met, that you make sure that you're fed, that you make sure you have what you need in life. Look at all the ways that you're loving yourself, and Jesus is saying now, love your neighbor like that. That's crazy, isn't it? Look at all the ways you love yourself. Now, now turn that, that love around, and, and I want you to, to look at your neighbor, and I want you to prioritize their needs like that. I want you to, to, to bend over backwards to make sure they're heard like that. that, that that's what he's getting after here. I love how one pastor said it. He said, when, when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's saying, I want you to meet the needs of others with all the energy, the delight, the creativity, and the consistency with which we meet our own. That, that's, that's loving your neighbor as your son. Just, just think about what that would mean if we did that in our life. That, that we, we looked at how we loved ourselves, and, and then we, we, we started to love other people in our lives like that. Think how costly that love would be. How inconvenient that love would be. I mean, there's a part of me that it's like, I get why the Pharisees are just going to leave that off. I mean, we'll just do without those last two words. We'll just leave it at love your neighbor and forget the words as yourself. But Jesus is saying, no, no, those words are in there, as yourself. And, and then they make one addition. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor, and here's the addition, and hate your enemy, and hate your enemy. Now, where in the world did that come from? Um, Charles Spurgeon, the old Baptist preacher, he, he called those words, um, and hate your enemy, a parasitical growth upon God's law. You're not going to go to the Old Testament and find God commanding the Old Testament people uh, to, to hate their enemies. You're not going to find that. Rather, here's the sort of things you will find in the Old Testament. Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will be heaping burning coals upon his head. You're going to find things like that. But, but this addition, hate your enemy, wasn't from God, it was from their tradition. Not from God, but from their tradition. They had taken God's command to love, and then they adjusted that command to fit their own lovelessness. You see what's happening there? Here's the command, love your neighbor as yourself. Here's what they were, loveless, and, and they adjusted this command to fit their life, to fit their lovelessness. Th this is what's happening with the Pharisees. It, 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 they put limits on their love. 
They, they drew the boundaries. God, this is how far my love is going to go, but no further. That's what the Pharisees did with this command. But now we get Jesus. Here's what Jesus does with it. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. I just, I don't think there could be a more difficult verse in the entire Bible. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is saying, no, no, don't shrink the law down to what is humanly possible. Don't downsize the law. Don't Don't gut that command to love by putting limits on it. But where the Pharisees wanted limits on their love, Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I, I want a love without limits. That, that's what I'm after. That, that's what the command to love your neighbor is about. It's about a love without limits. It's interesting. In Luke chapter 10, there, there's an interesting um, passage where Jesus is asked a question, um, what are the two greatest commandments? So what's the greatest commandment? You know, of all the Old Testament commandments, how would you rank the the most important ones? And Jesus clarifies, here are the most important two. Love um, God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the most important two commandments in the Old Testament, or in the Bible, even, for that matter. Uh, But then he goes on, and and the guy responded with a second follow-up question. Okay, so if the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, well, who is your neighbor? And if you remember in in Luke 10, Jesus goes on to tell them the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the point of the parable, Jesus' point there, is to say that that I want you to love without limits. Jesus is addressing in the, in the, the parable of the Good Samaritan that instinctive desire to draw the lines. Here are the people who are lovable. Here are the people who are not. I will love the lovable ones. I will not love the unlovable ones. That's exactly what he's addressing, that instinctive desire to draw the lines on who we will and will not love. And Jesus is saying in that parable, no to that. I want you to love in such a way that that you are showing there are no limits to it. There there are no limits to how it's going to play out in your life. Jesus' point in that parable is to say, your neighbor, your neighbor, that the neighbor that you are to love as yourself is anyone and everyone that, that God providentially puts in your path. If God inserts them into your life, they're the neighbor that God is saying, now you have to figure out how to love them like, like you love yourself. So, so think about the categories of people that that encompasses. Your neighbor could be people like you. That's the easiest people to love. They kind of share the same beliefs. They kind of have the general same morality and view of life, Right? It's like the people who are like you, that that could be your neighbor. But it also expands out to the people unlike you. They're different than you. They don't see the world like you. They behave different. They they look different. They've got a different background. Um, That could be the really annoying person in your home group. That that could be the person in your workplace that just grates on you. I mean, when you you are around them, you just kind of want to scream. It it could be that person. They're They're just not like you. They're unlike you. That, that circle of neighbor expands even out to those people who dislike you. you. You might think of these as small enemies in life. They're not big enemies. They're just small enemies. They're just, they, they, it's not that they hate you. They just, they just kind of don't like you, right? Those people, small enemies. It's that person who just they, just, they just sort of go out of their way to just make your life a little more difficult. They're just kind of that overly critical boss, that that coworker that is always criticizing, that, that neighbor, they just, they, they just don't like you. And you, you kind of know they don't like you. It, 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 neighbor, 
encompasses even those people who dislike you. But it also expands out to those people who hate you. We might call these the big enemies, those people who hate you. Um, The people who actively work against you for your harm. People who have wounded you. People who have abused you. If you uh, think first century context, this would lead us straight to the sort of people who actually are out to kill you, persecute you. Like, like they, they would love to see you dead. That, that word neighbor goes out even that far. That, that word neighbor is an all-inclusive word encompassing even enemies. And, and that's what makes this passage so difficult, isn't it? When he's saying love your neighbors, he's not saying accept your enemies. He's saying especially your enemies especially them. Now, before we go any further, we would, we would be doing ourselves a disservice if we allowed that word enemy to stay theoretical and abstract up, up in the clouds. But we've got to make sure we're bringing that word down to the ground and making it very concrete. So, so when you hear Jesus say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, I, I need you to, to remove the word enemy, and I want you to insert in a name, th- th- these, these particular faces. Like when you hear Jesus say the word enemies, who are the people that, that arise up out of you and you instantly think of them first? Enemies, big or small, who, who are those people? Everybody in this room has someone. I'm going to be really impressed if you don't. You probably have someone that when, this, when you hear Jesus say this, that your mind instantly goes to. You, you've got to make that really concrete. You've got to have a, a name, a face. Who, who are those people that, that fill in that word enemy? Now, what does it look like to love that person? What does that look like? In the Gospel of Luke, if you want to, you can flip there. It's going to be up on the screen for you as well. In Luke chapter 6, there's a parallel account to these words in Matthew 5. And in Luke's version, uh, it's got a little more substance to it, a few more phrases built into it. And, and each of these three phrases that we find in Luke's parallel account, I think in a lot of ways, are giving us the substance of what loving our neighbor, in particular our enemy, would actually look like. What would it look like to, to love our enemy? Uh, Luke shows us, or actually Jesus in Luke's gospel shows us. So in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28, here's what we find. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies... Do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. Now, I want to take that in the reverse order, take those three things in the reverse order, and and just, I think it can give us some handlebars for what what it would look like if we want to actually obey the words of Jesus. We want to do that, don't we? We want to actually obey the words of Jesus. This gives us some, some handlebars on what that would actually look like in our life. Here's the first one. He says, pray for those who abuse you. Pray for those who abuse you. One quick word about abuse before we try to work out what what he's saying here. I just want to clarify this, that I know that some in the room have been abused by people in just unspeakably horrific ways. And I want to clarify this passage is not saying abuse is okay. Jesus is not saying abuse is okay. I'm not saying abuse is okay. This church is definitely not saying abuse is okay. We're actually saying the exact opposite. That there's criminal laws that actually address that in our country, and I'm so thankful for that because that's a criminal act. 
And, and if you are in a position of, of you're being abused right now in your life in some way, shape, or form, I just want to implore you today, do not leave today without letting us know that. The, our number one agenda this morning for you would be to get you in a safe place. I think that would be Jesus' number one agenda for you this morning is to get you in a safe place. So we want to do everything we can to do that. So, so do not leave here if that's you without letting us know that. We'll be, uh, our pastors and prayer team will be up here up front afterwards. Make sure you come and let us know if that's you. But what Jesus is addressing is the posture of our hearts. That's what he's after. Pr pray for those who abuse you, who wrong you, who harm you, who go out of their way to make your life terrible. Pr pray for them. Th this is where love starts. Th this is where it starts. Praying for those who abuse you. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Nazi Germany. He, he actually died in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany. So this was not theoretical to him. Enemies were in front of him. Like, like this was a very practical thing for him. And, and listen to what he said about this particular passage. He said, this is the, the supreme command. And then listen to what he says about prayer. He says, through prayer... We go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. Th this is where love starts. Standing beside our en en enemy in front of God, praying on their behalf. Now, there's a lot that we can do after we pray, but there's little we can do before we pray. By praying for our enemies, God tenderizes our heart. You know, whoever, whoever were the names and faces that, that fall into the enemy category for you, you can almost bet that, that what you have done to them is dehumanize them. Almost, de pro probably demonize them. But, but they are, the, the enemies become less than human really quick. But, but here's what prayer for a person does. It rehumanizes them. It, it makes them human again. In, in prayer, God begins to impart his heart to us, we begin to see and to feel the way that God sees and feels. Uh, prayers, uh, prayer for enemies uh, is both an expression of love to them, and it's a means of increasing our love for them. It, it's both of those. It's an expression of and a way of increasing it. And, and listen to this warning by John Stott, or this encouragement by John Stott. He says, we must not wait to pray for an enemy until we feel some love for him in our heart. If you wait till you feel a lot of love for a person to pray for them, you will never pray for them. It's just not going to happen. He says, we must not wait to pray for an enemy until we feel some love for him in our heart. We must begin to pray for him before we are conscious of loving him. And we shall find our love break first into bud and then into blossom. Now, just apply this for a moment. What would it look like for you to actually obey that? To pray for those who abuse you? What would that look like in your life? What would it look like for that to be a, a way that you pray c consistently for an enemy? What, what would that look like to obey that? Th to go on their, uh, on their behalf to the throne of God pleading for them. He says, pray for those who abuse you. Secondly, he says, bless those who curse you. Bless those who curse you. We love them both through praying for them. That's one way. And then how we talk about them. Now, th think about the, the people that, that their kind of names and faces came up. If you can imagine, they're in a conversation with a group of people, whoever those, uh, that category of enemy, you know, those names, faces were for, for you. They're with a group of people, and your name comes up. 
what do you think is going to happen when your name comes up and they start talking about you? That's, that's not a, a, a hard one to find, is it? I mean, the chances are they are going to, I mean, just drag your name through the mud, right? But Jesus is saying here, I, I'm much less concerned about what they do when your name comes up, and I'm much more concerned about what you do when their name comes up. What happens? H- how, do you, how do you talk about them? Is it curse for curse? That they say something bad about me, so I'm going to make sure the world knows how bad they are. That's what I'm going to do. And doesn't that just feel so good to do that? I mean, it, it, it is so easily confused for justice in our life. That that little bit of slander just feels like we are doing the right thing, making sure these people know how bad that person is. It just, it feels so good. So much like justice. But Jesus is saying no to that. No, it is not curse for curse. Rather than cursing them, bless them. Every human being is made in the image of God. And if you look long enough, you can find in every human being traces of God, evidences of the grace of God. You can find it in every human being. And and part of what Jesus is saying here is, what would it look like for you to to trace the, the evidences of God far enough into their life where you can actually name some? And then the next time you see them, the next time you're around them, the next time their name comes up, what if rather than returning curse for curse, you bless them by by affirming them, by by a compliment of them? What would it it look like for you to to obey that? Bless those who curse you. Not curse those who curse you, but bless those who, who curse you. Think about those names and faces. What would it look like if this passage actually began to to come in and out of your life. But bless those who curse you. And then he says, do good to those who hate you. Do good to those who harm you. Do do good to those who don't do any good to you. They just bring a lot of bad into you. Do do good to those who hate you. Uh, Years ago, we uh, brought Paul Tripp in for a marriage conference. And I've always loved the way he defined what love is at that marriage conference. He said it like this. Love is willing self-sacrifice. So it's willing, I I am voluntarily saying yes, it's willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. So it's willing self-sacrifice without saying, the only way I'm going to willingly sacrifice myself is if you deserve it or if you're going to reciprocate it. That's love. It's willing self-sacrifice without that demand for reciprocation or that demand that they be deserving. And I just want to focus on the first half of that definition. It's this willing self-sacrifice for the good of another. Love is not agreeing to, I just won't harm them. I'll just, I'll just pull out of their life completely and just not harm them. That, that is not love. Love is actually on the other side. It's, it's not just agreeing not to harm an enemy. It's, it's actually doing good to an enemy. It's actually seeking, being willing to sacrifice, personally lose, inconvenient, just shred your comfort. Like, you're willing to lose so that good can be introduced into their life. That's love. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 21. He says it like this. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The reason that a follower of Jesus can withhold retaliation 
is because we have a just God. And every per, uh, person, every evil done in this world will either be paid for by the sacrifice of Jesus or one day by the perpetrator of that evil. That's the reason you don't have to retaliate. You can entrust retaliation and justice to a just God who is wiser and smarter and better than you, right? That's the reason we don't have to retaliate because God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But then Paul goes on to say, to the contrary, don't retaliate, avenge yourselves, but to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Actually do good to them, feed them. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. What might it look like for you to apply that? Not just to agree not to do bad to an enemy, but to actually sacrifice yourself to do them good. But what would that look like? To those names and faces that fit into that enemy category, what would it look like for you to do that for them? And I love what Paul goes on to say here in Romans 12. He says in verse 21, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I love that reminder. Paul is reminding us that responding to evil with more evil just compounds evil. I just, can we all just, just allow the Lord to remind us of that today? Responding to evil with more evil just compounds evil. If we want renewal in this world, renewal in our relationships, if, if, if that's what we want, the, the only way to overcome evil is by doing good. By praying for those who abuse you. By blessing those who curse you. By, by doing good to those who hate you. My favorite example of that is the civil rights movement of the 1960s. It was a fight against government-sanctioned, government-approved abuses, wrongdoing, and injustices. The, the government had sanctioned injustice. And the civil rights movement was fighting against that, that injustice. And that was after hundreds of years of cruelty and just uninhibited atrocities done against um, black Americans. A few years ago, I read the biography of Malcolm X. And reading his biography, I'm like, man, I get why you'd want to pick up a sword. I get why an eye for an eye would look really good right now. I, 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 I get why that would be. And it's amazing that Jesus rose up out of the ashes of that moment, Martin Luther King Jr. And, and he was a man who I think in a lot of ways embodied what Jesus is getting at here. And, and listen to, to this paragraph from him. He says, the ultimate weakness of violence, retaliation, curse for curse, hate for hate, the, the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral, begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie, nor establish the truth. Through violence, you may murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate, and so it goes. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. He got that right, and here's the thing, he got that from Jesus. That's where he got it. He knew the road to renewal is lined with limitless love. Responding to those who do bad to you with good. Now, now what would that look like in your life? 
that you need to leave here today with concrete examples of, of this is what that would look like. Here are the enemies in my life, and this is what it would look like to, to love my enemies. Now, I want to f- uh, finish. We'll just spend the last couple of minutes here on why, why this. W- why do we love without limits? Why, why should we do that? Here's a, a couple of the reasons that Jesus gives. Look at verse 44 and beyond. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have for that? Do not even the the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Why should we love like this? Two reasons. Number one, limits, when we put limits on our love, limits make us like the world. It makes us like the world. Go back to that definition of love. Love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. That, that's, that, that's love. It's a sacrifice that doesn't demand reciprocation. And, and Jesus' point in this passage is e- even, even tax collectors are nice to people who are nice to them. Even tax collectors are, are, are going to scratch the back of those who scratch theirs. I mean, that, that's the point. No one is impressed when people love people who love them. No one is shocked by that. That, that, is, that, that is human nature. That love is not the same thing as the reciprocation of kindness. The, the reciprocation of kindness is just being smart. The reciprocation of kindness is really just a way to get what you want in life. That's the reciprocation of kindness, and that's not the same thing as love. This is why your treatment of enemies tells you more about your heart than your treatment of friends. Now just think about that for a moment. Your treatment of enemies tells you more about your heart than your treatment of friends. Because love is a willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand them be a friend. That does not demand them be them scratch your back. That does not demand them do good to you. Love is this willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand that reciprocation. Look at verse 47. What more are you doing than others? Now that's a question that every Christian should ask. What more am I doing than others? In some ways, Jesus is giving the world the right to judge Christians based on that. What more are we doing than others? What more? Just th- think, about, th- think about that category of enemies for you, th- those names and faces. Is there anything that would be shocking about the way you're interacting with them? It, it, would anyone look at how you interact with them and be surprised by it? And Jesus is saying, you ought to be. The world ought to be really surprised by how Christians do that. But, but limits make us like the world. On the other hand, a limitless love, when we have a love without limits, it makes us a lot like our dad. A, a lot like our dad. And isn't that what we all want? Don't we all want to be like our good dad? Don't we all want to be a little more like God? We're all image bearers of God. And, and as his sons, don't we all want to look more like the God that we image? I, I want that. 
I know you want that. We all, we all want that. And look at what he says here in verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now let me explain there. Enemy love is not the way we become a son. It's the way we become a son who looks more like our dad. I'm going to say that one more time. Enemy love is not the way we become a son of God. It's a way that we become a son who looks more like our dad. I think about it. How does our dad love? He goes on to tell us, For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. That, that's the pattern. This is, this is how our dad loves. He, he loves his enemies. This is just an example of God's common grace. God takes people who ignore him, who don't want anything to do with him, who, who wish he didn't even exist, and, and God does this to them. He sends rain upon them. God, God has the sun rise every morning, and every morning that that sun rises, God's looking at his enemy, and he's saying, I just want to brighten your day by putting this in your life. And every time the sun sets, God is looking at an enemy, and he is saying, I, I am putting that sunset in your life just to make your life a little more beautiful. This is the heart of our good dad. And when we, when we love our enemies, we're showing the heart of our good dad. We're, just, we're becoming more like our dad. We're just, we're just doing what our dad does. And this is the point in verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It's a similar way of, saying, uh, of God saying, be holy for I am holy. He's saying that, that I am perfect in the way that I love, not just, not just my friends, but my enemies. I'm perfect in the way that I do that. Now, I want you to come on into that. I want my heart to be in your heart, and I want you to show that love of enemies. Now, where in the world would we get the power to do that? How in the world is that ever going to be possible in our life? There's only one way. It only happens when the sons and daughters of God stand beneath the cross of Christ. It only happens when our hearts are just soaked and just saturated with the dying love of Jesus for enemies. I mean, isn't enemy love the gospel of Jesus Christ? That although we fired the first shot at God, Although we were stuck in our sin, caught up in our pride, completely indifferent to God, while we were still enemies, Paul says in Romans 5, God sent the Son. Jesus wrapped on human flesh. He, he, he walked across enemy lines to track us down, to win us over, and to make us friends. We have to see Jesus hanging there upon the cross and remind and to remind our hearts that that's, that's the dying love of Jesus for his enemies. That that's the dying love of Jesus for me. That we, the enemies of God, have been treated so kindly by God, so gently by God, so graciously by God. I, I, one way just to summarize the gospel in, in a short phrase is it's God doing unspeakably great things for unspeakably bad people. If you're a follower of Jesus in the room, that, that's your story. God has done unspeakably great things for you, an unspeakably bad person. And that gospel then creates a people who do unspeakably great things for unspeakably bad people. 
It's that gospel that gives us the power to live in this. So just there where you are, I want you to, to bow your head. And I want you to allow just the Spirit of God in the next few minutes to address your heart. Who are those names and faces? Who are the names and faces? And I want you to ask yourself a question. If I put limits around my love of them, Or is it a love without limits? Is there, any, is there anything in my life as I relate to, to that person, to those people, that would be surprising? That would shock someone? If not, this is the moment where you get to bring that before the Lord. We get to own that. We get to confess that, repent of that. We get to celebrate God's grace that meets us right in the middle of that. And then we get to make some fresh commitments today to Jesus. It hasn't been there, but, but it's going to be there. Here are the ways it's going to play out. Here are the two or three or four things I'd like to do. And let me just encourage you, for, for many of us, as we're working through, what would it look like for me to love an enemy? If that's a great conversation for your home group, it's a great conversation to work out in good community, what, what should I pray for them? H how can I talk about them? W what is the good that I can do for them? And I am so grateful today that we get to end by taking communion because it reminds us of the unbelievable good that God has done to us. The unspeakable good that God has done to us, his unspeakable enemies. It reminds us of, of Jesus' body broken for us upon the cross. It reminds us of, of Jesus' blood that was spilled for us on the cross. It's the dying, it's a picture of the dying love of Jesus for enemies. That's what communion is. It's a living, breathing picture of that, reminder of that, which is the very thing we need to melt our heart if we're ever going to love the enemies in our life. So today we're going to get a chance to celebrate communion. Let me remind you that communion is for those who are in relationship with Jesus. So today, before you take communion, we want to invite you to take Jesus. But please do that. I'm going to be right up here at the front left of the room. I would love to talk to you about that if that's you. But before you take communion, take Jesus. And secondly, it's for those who are in right relationship with Jesus. Is there any unconfessed sin in your life? If so, this is your time to, to, to repent of that, to confess that before you come up to the table. And then let me just remind you how we do it. We have four, uh, three or four stations up front here. Um, you, you grab the bread, you dip it in the juice, and you eat it, and that's how we take communion. And then I also think we have a couple of stations in the back as well. So let me pray for you as you do business with the Lord. Father, would you meet us now? God, would you come on into this room and into our very souls? And God, would you, 
Would you stand in front of us? And God, would you initiate the conversations in each of our lives that we need today? God, would you put in us the courage we need? God, would you help us? God, we, your weak people, need your strength today. So, oh God, meet us now. Meet us now. And it's in your good name we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.